What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. To my right is Bounty Law series lead and Jake Cahill himself, Rick Dalton. And to my left is Rick Stutt Double Cliff Booth. The first 10 seconds or so of what is arguably the most anticipated movie of the summer, Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Let's see, Endgame is out, Star Wars Episode Nine doesn't come out till December. Yeah, I think Tarantino's got this on lockdown. This week on the show, our summer movie preview in the form of our top five questions about the summer movie season. Question number one, Josh, with its late 60s Hollywood setting, will Once Upon a Time in Hollywood be, if not the best, the most Tarantino movie Tarantino's ever made. Ooh, I think of Kill Bill that way, so we'll have to see if mm-hmm. he can top that. We'll have all that talk plus 1963 Charade, the third film in our Stanley Donnan marathon. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. So, from what I can tell, everyone went to see Endgame last weekend. Everyone. The box office, Josh, not something we care to talk about too much here on the show, but it made over a billion dollars. Is that accurate? In its first weekend, a billion dollars? I'm going to have to take your word for it, but I believe it on this evidence alone. Went to see it with the family and looked down the hall of the multiplex, and you rarely see this where every poster facing you is the same movie. I mean, a lot of times, and often it's a Marvel movie. They'll be dominated by one title, but here, everyone mm. was Endgame. Well, you saw it last weekend again. I'll be seeing it again this weekend with a couple of my kids and a couple more of my kids who have already seen it. So we are only adding to that box office hall. It is making all the money, and as we said last week, it's good. So have people's appetite for all movies been satisfied at this point? Is there any reason at all to talk about this summer's measly non-endgame offerings? Yeah, I think we can find some stuff to look forward to. A little breather from the Marvel Universe, perhaps. Not entirely, but mostly. This week on the show, we will have our summer movie preview. Our top five questions about the summer movie season. Will a superhero appear on the list? Plus, Charade, Stanley Donnan's 1963 crime caper comedy starring Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant. It's the first non-musical in our Donnan marathon. But first, why in the world is it still snowing on April 27 in Chicago? My theory, Adam and I haven't done our summer movie preview yet. So let's get to it. Adam, usually we don't have to spend a lot of time on criteria for these question lists. We do basically avoid some of the titles we mentioned when we did this in January, looking ahead to the entire year. Did you have any other guiding principles to help you narrow down among all the summer titles what you wanted to highlight? No. I didn't think so. (laughs) I didn't. Worth noting, though, that in those questions from January... None of them were summer movies, so I didn't have any fear of overlap in this case. We don't necessarily restrict ourselves from picking movies that would be at the top of our list if we were just doing pure excitement, pure anticipation, but that's not what this list is. We may get to some of those titles later, and yes, Once Upon a Diamond Hollywood would definitely be at the top of my list. I think I've got two picks among my questions, though, Josh, that would qualify for that list. Okay. Yeah, I saved those, I think, for some honorable mentions, but otherwise dug a little bit deeper. I'm going to name a couple titles that I wasn't even aware of, really, or had forgotten when I looked at the year schedule back in January, and these have bubbled to the top. They look interesting, and so I want to highlight them for listeners. And one of those, at number five, I'm asking, 
can Mindy Kaling build her big screen presence with Late Night? Now, I know Kaling has appeared in movies before. Most recently, we've seen her in Ocean's 8 and A Wrinkle in Time. But she's got a more instrumental role in Late Night. She wrote it, and she also has a supporting part. The star, however, is Emma Thompson, playing a longtime late-night talk show host whose job is threatened by a younger male comic. Now, part of the appeal here for me is I love the idea of Thompson getting a lead part at this stage in her career. have always enjoyed her on screen, and she probably hasn't gotten as many shots as she's deserved. So this is great to see her in the lead. The setting, too, right up my alley. I mean, I'll admit, in middle age, I've drifted away from Late night television, I just can't always sustain that sort of lifestyle anymore. I save my late nights for here in the recording studio, Adam. Right. But back in the Letterman era, the early Letterman era, I mean, late night was a nightly ritual for me. So I really love that world and am looking forward to returning to this fictionalized version of it. I also just really respect Kayleen's abilities as a creative force, both behind and in front of the camera. We're still working our way through every office episode there has ever been at home. And it's just a reminder of what a huge part she was of that show as an actor, a producer, and a writer too. So she's wearing those hats here, which is encouraging. The director of Late Night is Nisha Ganatra, Unfamiliar with her myself, but she's a television vet who has Dear White People, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and Last Man on Earth credits. I know a lot of people who love all of those shows. So hopefully we'll bring the right touch here. Late Night is out June 7. So you're not watching late night comedy anymore. You're also not watching television anymore. You just told the world. (laughs) You haven't seen any of those shows. I wish I had caught up with some of those shows. I've only heard good things. Yeah, that's pretty true, though. I'm just narrowing down towards hermithood, Adam. Yes. <laughs> well, perfect crossover with my number five, Josh. And this is truly a case where I just had to manufacture a question to justify fitting in these two titles. And you just named one of them. My question is, which beloved British thespian who starred together in Henry V will play a talented failure best. So the two films I'm thinking of are Late Night, starring Emma Thompson, and All is True, starring the former Mr. Emma Thompson, Kenneth Branagh, who, of course, starred together not only in Henry V, but also in a movie that is cheesy fun, Dead Again. It is fun. I like Dead Again. Yeah. So I looked at their filmographies, and these are actors who have been working plenty over the past five to seven years. If you look at IMDb, especially Thompson, but really, there's not much at all that we've talked about here on the show or to your point where they've had major roles. Branagh was in Dunkirk and Thompson was in the Meyerowitz story. She plays the third wife, I think, to the Dustin Hoffman character. Other than that, again, we haven't talked about these actors much at all. And I love both of them. Also share Harry Potter. That's true. Truman. Yeah, yeah they're they do. both really good there. So you talked about Late Night. I'll start with All is True, which you'll never believe it. It's Branagh doing something Shakespeare related. It's set in 1613. Here he is not portraying a Shakespeare character, but portraying Shakespeare himself. And he is kind of at the pinnacle of his career, but that's when his theater, the Globe Theater, burns to the ground. And he ends up going back to Stratford, where he not only has to finally kind of reckon with the death of his son, but he's got a wife and daughters who he has pretty much neglected. So here we're getting the Shakespeare not as the amazing writer or the lover as we've seen in other films but as that failed husband and father of course i am going to be a little bit giddy about 
really any movie that portrays Shakespeare, but especially if it's Branagh doing it. And then Late Night, you're right. I was fascinated by this when I watched the trailer for it earlier today, and I can't wait to watch Emma Thompson really bite into a juicy role, especially one that seems like it will allow her to be pretty funny and a little bit vicious maybe at the same time as this Late Night host who is, as you pointed out, Josh, failing, possibly going to be replaced, and that's when she has to sort of team up with the Kaling character. Very different movies, Late Night and All Is True, but both starring two of our best actors. So looking forward to All Is True, which comes out actually just next week, May 10th, and then Late Night a little bit later in June, June 7th. It's only a matter of time before Branagh played Shakespeare, right? He hasn't right. done it already. Has I don't know, he? probably like seven times. And <laughs> Maybe. just missed him. Yeah, I can't. doesn't come to mind, but he was going to get to it at some point. All right, my number four question. Which Disney reheat, that's my catch-all term for remakes, reboots, whatevers, which one's going to make me sigh more? Is it going to be Aladdin or is it going to be The Lion King? <laughs> I'll admit Aladdin looks far worse just on the face of it. I mean, when you got to look at Will Smith, didn't you wonder when he saw that, was it too late for him to say, I'm out, I'm backing out. <laughs> I didn't yeah. know it was going to look like this. Not a good look. Guy Ritchie as the director doesn't really, you know, get me excited at least. Although I'll say I don't hold the original Aladdin in that high of esteem or certainly as high as I do the Lion King. I like it, but it's not in the tier that the Lion King is. So there's some room there for me to be forgiving, I guess. Uh, the Lion King, I'm probably much more precious about. Can you feel the love tonight, Adam? You know, one of the <laughs> no, top five movie duets I can't. of all time. And I Michael stand Phillips by it. Couldn't either. Despite the bullying I took from you and Michael Phillips, I'm very protective about the Lion King. I'm leery of messing with it. But then I remember... The Lion King stage show, that was one of the best theatrical experiences of my life. Really? And that's doing something completely different, right, with that material. So maybe I should be open to new takes on the tale. Maybe I should go into this version with that sort of attitude. I'll say this. At this point, I'm likely to see The Lion King. I can't say for sure I'm going to bother with Aladdin. So I may never really answer this question. True. I'll, I'll probably be okay if I don't. Aladdin is the first one out. We're going to get that May 24. The Lion King is July 19. Yeah, of course I'm curious about The Lion King because I enjoy that Disney film as well. But I thought about both of these today along similar lines as you and just couldn't muster up the energy <laughs> to talk about either so of them. So the way I feel about Aladdin, you feel yeah. about both. Yeah, I don't have a question. I just have the sigh. <laughs> My number four question of the summer movie season and you're going to be disappointed in me, Josh, for probably going down the superhero path, but it really is in my mind. With the great closure of Avengers Endgame, will I feel a great desire or only a responsibility to see Spider-Man Far From Home? See what I was doing there, Josh? I, I see it. Okay, I, I want to hear you answer this now. I'm really surprised there's another superhero movie on this list. Yeah, but my point is, I don't really want to see it. And okay. that kind of blows my mind only because I'm a fan of Tom Holland as Peter Parker, the playfulness, the smarts, even the physicality he brings to the role. The supporting players are great. We saw them in Spider-Man Homecoming, Zendaya, and Jacob Batalon as his friend Ned. Michael Keaton so good as the villain in Homecoming. He's at least in the credits for Far From Home. I don't know how big of a role he's going to play. And then you've got Gyllenhaal, who somehow has become one of my favorite actors mm -hmm. working in film today as the main villain. Mysterio. So that's all great. Add to that the fact that Spider-Man was either my first or second superhero love. It might have been Superman first, oh, but the Spider-Man. It should be Spider-Man. It maybe should, but the Spider-Man underoos were right there with the Superman oh, yeah. ones. And, <laughs> and I definitely wore both. 
but I might just be superheroed out, or at least marveled out. And maybe this is bad timing for the summer preview to come right on the heels of Avengers Endgame, but it's not just due to the sheer number of these movies we get every year. It's because of how neatly and how solemnly and how completely Endgame put a bow on these characters and these stories for me. And I know that that film was about the Avengers. It was about the old guard, Cap and Iron Man and others, being replaced by the new guard, Spider-Man, Captain Marvel, Black Panther. I'm just not sure I'm ready to suit back up. Yeah, I get it. I understand. And it's sort of, you're right, it's, Endgame's a victim of its own success in some ways, or at least the MCU is a victim of Endgame's success, maybe we should say. I'm eager for another Spider-Man movie. It's just a matter of timing for me as well. I think I have Spider-Man Homecoming ranked above Endgame in my MCU list. They're close. Yeah, You have Homecoming in the top three? I think I do. I think it. I think it because I know you put Endgame. At I think four. it goes Civil War, Black Panther. I might have Winter Soldier ahead of it. So at any rate, they're in those top five okay. or so. And maybe about November, I'd be really ready for another Spider-Man well, movie. It's going to be July. That's not. That's not going to happen. And we have a lot of non-MCU superhero movies coming out in that time frame as well. None of which are going to make my list. Okay. Instead, at number three, this question comes via our production assistant, Andy Mitchell. Should our golden brick senses be tingling, little Spider-Man there, for the last black man in San Francisco? So, good question, Andy. Let's consider the qualifications to be eligible for our annual award and see if this fits. We look for a rising talent. That's a check here. Co-writer and director Joe Talbot has not made a feature before. We usually look for, this isn't the right phrase, but a unique premise, uh, an intriguing idea that stands out behind the film, behind the concept at least. And this is loosely based on the experiences of its star, Jimmy Falls, and tells the story of a young man trying to reclaim the Victorian home that his grandfather built in gentrifying San Francisco. All right, so I think that fits. And then this one, we talk a lot about a clear cinematic vision, something interestingly in terms of what it's doing with the filmmaking. I can only go by what others have said about this movie. I didn't want to read too many reviews, kind of skimmed a few to get a sense of this element. And here's David Fear in Rolling Stone. He described it as a haunted house story without Mm. the supernatural horror element. And then Entertainment Weekly's Leah Greenblatt called it utterly original in both style and execution. I think that one in particular could describe a lot of our Golden Brick nominees over recent years. So, yes, Andy, those senses should be tingling. I'm very eager for The Last Black Man in San Francisco. It opens June 7th. I am eager as well. I'm not sure you're eager at all. In fact, I know you're not. Oh, boy. For the movie that comes up in my number three. Will Pokemon... Detective Pikachu provides sweet father-son bonding. I was going to say, did Quinn write this one? Or be our next Penguins of Madagascar. (laughs) And what that's a reference to, for those who don't know or don't follow me on Letterboxd, haven't come across this. If you're on that great platform, Letterboxd, you go to a film, let's say Penguins of Madagascar. It will show you a handful of reviews at the top from people you follow, your friends on Letterboxd. And then down below, it will show you popular reviews. In order of likes, the most popular reviews for that film. I hold the most popular review for Penguins of Madagascar. And this isn't bragging. This is not bragging. Your critical career is complete. Because I wrote these five words. I hate my kids sometimes. 
Oh, this, I kind of feel bad that that's the most liked or the most popular review this on Letterboxd. This is going to be for worse. That this movie is going to be worse. I have no evidence. You think so? Yes. I, I watched the trailer today. This is purely today. an instinctual response. I just watched the trailer and I don't think you're right. Oh my gosh. I have a little bit of hope, but maybe it's just because I know I have to go. Penguins of Madagascar, though, was a case where I took the kids. I think we were back in Iowa. I took some of their cousins with them. They all had a ball. For whatever reason, I just was not into it. I couldn't wait to leave the Penguins of Madagascar. Now, we have this Pokemon film. And my kids, at least the three boys, have all at various stages been really into Pokemon. I think Holden is now out of that. But Quinn and Connor, fully ensconced. Connor still wears his Pikachu pajamas to bed sometimes. And I hope he'll be wearing them to the theater. You know what? It's a good thought. A little kept in our cosplay. Yeah, we might just have to do it. I think you should join them. So I know that I'm going to take, if not all three or four kids, I'm going to take at least those two to this movie. They can't wait. And I'm hoping that I'll laugh at Ryan Reynolds as the voice of Pikachu. And somehow I'll end up caring about what happens on screen. But if I don't, I'm going to say this. You know how some people just have great laughs? My son Quinn has a great laugh. When he just gets really into something and lets go, it cracks me up. It makes me smile like nothing else. And I'm hoping that if I'm not entertained by this movie, maybe at least I'll be entertained by watching him and Connor be entertained. That would be enough to get me through those 90 minutes or so, I think, at the multiplex. You're a talking Pikachu with no memories who's addicted to caffeine. What? No. I can stop whenever I want. These are just choices. Another round, extra shot. Black as night, thank you. Sorry, it's piping hot. Once more, unto the breach, my friend. <laughs> Indeed. May 10th, I'm going to find out, and I will report back. Oh, yes, please do. I will offer a five-word <laughs> review. Thank you. Keep it to that, please. My number two question, can Octavia Spencer do mean in Ma? First, I'm going to read the IMDb description for Ma. A lonely woman befriends a group of teenagers and decides to let them party at her house. Just when the kids think their luck couldn't get any better, things start happening that make them question the intention of their host. Now, I'm going to point out that Octavia Spencer plays this woman who is definitely a strange and threatening figure in the trailer for Ma. Let's get this party turned up! I love this idea. I mean, it just wouldn't be as interesting if you cast someone like, I, she probably wouldn't do something like this, but Tilda Swinton, you know, someone who kind of reads a little weird and kind of keeps you on edge no matter what she's doing. Okay. That would make sense. Um, an expected choice in a way. But Spencer? Yeah. This is the yeah, woman who played. There's menace in Tilda Swinton. There's not menace in Octavia Spencer. Not a drop that I've witnessed. No, she's capable yet. of anything. Uh, obviously. Surely. But but this is what we know her as. The kind janitor Zelda in the shape of water. How about hallowed Dorothy Vaughn in Hidden Figures? She played, the woman played God in the shack, Adam. Okay. So now she's going a little different Was lane. she a menacing God? Um, you know what? Didn't see it. So yeah. I can't say. This is just twisted, though, to go from that to this fright figure in Ma. It's exactly what has me excited about the movie. Ma opens May 31. All right. Here's a film that I know for sure we're both going to end up seeing because we are definitely going to talk about it on the show. 
Will John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum, continue the mythologizing of Chapter 2 or get back to the mystery of John Wick? I'll explain here in a moment. First, the plot synopsis, the one-sentence plot synopsis for Parabellum. It legendary probably only hitman. needs five words. I mean, really. Legendary hitman John Wick must fight his way out of New York when a $14 million contract on his life makes him the target of the world's top assassins. Now, does that sound familiar? Because that's pretty much the plot of Chapter 2. Yeah. They're maybe not the world's top assassins. They're just anyone who happens to be in New York at the time. And I don't think it's $14 million, But otherwise, that's pretty much at least the last half of Chapter 2. We talked about that film along with a Sacred Cow review of John Wick a couple of years ago. I'm not going to recite my reviews of either movie, but I'll say that I loved John Wick. I loved the first one. It was pretty mixed on, too, and the primary reason was all the time it devoted to the details of this underground world. It took what was so fascinating about the first one, or at least a major part of what was so fascinating about the first one, some of the rules that apply to these assassins, the currency, what's allowed and what's forbidden, and it just got lost in all of those machinations. For me, I just got enough to latch on to in that first one. You got the sense that the world was so robust that the directors David Leach and Chad Stahelski had created that they were just skimming the surface of it. But that, again, to me, just made it even more intriguing. And the more we learned in chapter two, the less intriguing it was. So I'm wondering if three is going to get even more lost or is it going to return to the simplicity of one? I'm a little worried after reading a few comments from Chad Stahelski, who directed two solo and is directing three as well. He said, as far as set pieces go, we have a few more things we didn't use from number two. We want not so much to go bigger on the third one. And that's a great start. Yeah, sounds good. Then he says, but instead to show you more of the intricacies of the world. I feel like there's all these different subtleties that I skipped over in number two that I'd like to go back to in number three and show you the inner workings of different parts of New York. Rather than massive set pieces, I'd like to show you cooler more intricate ones. Hmm. So intricate sounds okay. I'm certainly okay with not giving us massive set pieces, but I think that word subtleties there is key. How subtle will it be with those world building and mythologizing details? And how much will it decide that that's what makes John Wick cool? Because it's really not. John Wick is just inherently cool. And I'm willing to follow him doing just about anything. It could be just him going to the grocery store for 85 minutes. And I think I would be on board with a positive review. Yeah, there's been, you know, diminishing returns from the original to the follow-up. I would agree. I, I liked the original, maybe not quite as much as you did, but definitely one of the things it did was achieve that balance of giving you just enough to believe in the world without getting lost in it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's hard for subsequent installments to expand without overwhelming. Mm -hmm. um, intrigued by this, I do feel like, are we just kind of, at this point, too committed to it? Because we were playing catch-up with that, with that Sacred Cow review. True. You know, we had kind of missed out on the first enthusiasm for John Wick and played catch up with John Wick chapter two. So we'll see. I guess we do have to round it out with three. Hopefully it'll be yeah. a move back in the right direction. May 17th is when John Wick chapter three comes out. My number one question for this summer movie season, will I be team Hobbs or team Shaw? <laughs> no way. Oh yeah. You're not even going to see this movie. Um, I'm calling shenanigans. Was I, or was I not just in a theater with my wife where this trailer showed up? So obviously she turned to me and said, so wait, we're going to see that. She's into 
Hobbs or Shaw or the violence? Which is it? Well, when we did our speaking of another Which catch up would series, you have? we did. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'll have to ask her that. Uh, when we did the catch up to the Fast and Furious franchise, yes, she watched all the films with me by choice. Mm-hmm. She could have bailed at any moment, and no, she was in. So she's definitely in for. I haven't even gotten to one of the best things about this movie yet. Its title, yeah, and this is why I have it at number one. <laughs> I submit to you that Fast and Furious presents. Hobbs and Shaw, yes, Adam, this is a two ampersand movie, is the definitive summer film. So I had to have it at the top. Now, I wasn't, let's do a little history here, Fast and Furious history. I wasn't initially happy with Dwayne The Rock Johnson's entry into that franchise. I just thought, I think it was the fifth film he came on. Fast Five, you mean the film of the franchise? You can nail this down for me because you are the scholar. He came on as government agent Luke Hobbs. I just thought he was too ironic, too jokey. I mean, it was the sincerity of Paul Walker. Oh, God. You're, you're bringing no sincerity to this conversation. No, I'm not. The sincerity of Paul Walker and Vin Diesel that I liked about the Fast and Furious films. And then in came Johnson with his kind of jokiness. Kind of upset that a little bit. By the time of 2017's Fate of the Furious, the series had fully swung. The whole thing had gone jokey, right? It, it had kind of started to lampoon itself. So you really had no choice but to get on board with Johnson's sensibility. Now, Statham's Deckard Shaw. He showed up a little bit later in the series. He's been on both sides of the law, as any good Fast and Furious character should be, Adam. Truly. I really like his balance of stone-faced hard-assery yeah. and, a, and a little bit of humor. I mean, we know from Spy, Statham can be hysterical, but he doesn't play that card too far, or it hasn't so far in the Fast and Furious series. So I'm torn here between these two guys. I'm going to let Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw help me to decide. There is a story here. Do you want the plot? Adam, I haven't. I mean, I haven't swung you. Do we need it? This this might swing you. I think I might. If I'm you don't sounding, know this already, I'm sounding like I'm not excited about this. I actually really want to see this. Okay, good. Lawman Luke Hobbs and outcast Deckard Shaw form an unlikely alliance when a cyber genetically enhanced villain threatens the future of humanity. That villain, Idris Elba. So you guys are being hunted by an army of mercenaries. Led by a genetically enhanced soldier. Look at me. I'm Black Superman. You're crazy. Damn. He really is Black Superman. Hmm. Come on. Hmm. Come on. But he's basically a superhero? That's where this is going now? Uh, He just kind of looks like he could take them both out in the trailer. So I'm all for that. That's his natural state. Maybe I'll come out of this wanting Idris Elba. Maybe I'll be team Idris Elba. I don't even know his character's name. Robo anti-cop. Anyways. Anyways. Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw opens August 2 as all questionable genre flicks should. No ampersands in my number one. Oh, terrible movie then. (laughs) The question is, can Booksmart possibly live up to my Lady Bird level expectations? The reason for the comparisons to Lady Bird, best as I can tell, Lady Bird, my favorite film of 2017. You have Olivia Wilde, the actress, directing the film with female leads. So similar to Greta Gerwig, of course, with Saoirse Ronan in Lady Bird. It's a high school set movie and actually both set during their senior years of school. And Beanie Feldstein is one of the stars of this film, just as she was a co-star 
in Lady Bird, she was Saoirse Ronan's best friend. Her best friend here is played by Caitlin Deaver, who's a really talented actress we've seen in Detroit, Short Term 12, and The Spectacular Now. The other movie this is getting compared to, not really a surprise, maybe just a little bit raunchier, I suppose, than Lady Bird is super bad. It's sort of a mixture of those two films, and I'm a fan of both of those films. Super bad, maybe not top film of the year quality, but a very good movie. And I think it was South by Southwest where this movie debuted or played recently anyway. And I started seeing all the people I follow on Twitter just talking so rapturously about this movie. I'm hoping and expecting, based on these responses, that the comparisons to Lady Bird are going to stretch beyond the milieu. How intelligently it hopefully will blend humor and heart, its insights about friendship and family, and ultimately showcasing the struggle to become the person you are and maybe not the person you think you want to be. Certainly the core of Lady Bird. Feldstein and Deaver play Amy and Molly. They are overachievers and they are about to graduate it's the eve of graduation and basically they decide that they have missed out on a lot by being so devoted to their schoolwork and being so serious so that one big night that one big night before graduation they're going to try to fit it all in it comes out may 24th i can't wait yeah, so Olivia Wilde, the name sound familiar, couldn't place the face, but Tron Legacy was yeah. the first I saw her in. And also really, really good, good in um, Drinking Buddies, the oh, Joe yeah. Swanberg film. Fantastic. So, yeah, interesting directorial debut for her. Those are our top five questions about the summer movie season. Josh, do you have any honorable mention questions? Well, I should probably cover some history here from last year's top five summer movie questions. Andy Mitchell, our production assistant, pointed out that I asked this last year. Are Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson the comedy team we never knew we needed? The Hustle, which I think is coming out like next week. It is. So I don't know if I had my dates off or this thing got delayed a year. Mm. If so, if it's the latter, not a very good sign. This is their reheat of dirty, rotten scoundrels. Um, Probably looking forward to it a little bit less. Now that it took a year extra Hmm. to come out. Uh, How about, you know, speaking of your concern that Endgame tied things up so nicely, and yet here we are with a Spider-Man movie. Is that going to sort of not tarnish that, but it's going to be weird seeing it in the wake of that. How about seeing Toy Story 4 in the wake of the perfection that was Toy Story 3? I mean, that's my main question about that Yeah, I mean, that's the question. Is it going to tarnish the legacy? I certainly hope not. The movie we've led with, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, what is Brad Pitt going to eat? I mean, come on. You've got to be worried about that, Adam. I'm your, always worried. Your Brad, your Brad Pitt eating fetish. One more here. How high will the dead don't die be on my top 10 list? The Jim Jarmusch zombie flick. It's right around the corner, Adam. June 14. Hmm. My version of the hustle here in honorable mentions is where'd you go, Bernadette? A question could be, no, really, where did you go, Bernadette? <laughs> the Linklater? Because, yeah, the Linklater movie, it actually did sort of in a roundabout way make my questions back in January because the number one question was what movie do I predict will be my favorite movie at the end of the year and where'd you go Bernadette being a link later movie was a popular choice among film spotting listeners but it also was a candidate for our 2018 movie preview it has been pushed back and pushed back apparently this film starring Kate Blanchett is truly going to come out in August 
I am excited about it despite the wait. My other question, I'm surprised these didn't come up at all for you, though I know you're excited about both of them. Will I feel about Midsummer the way most critics did about Hereditary? As you know, I didn't go as crazy for that Ari Aster film, wondering if I'll like Midsummer. The follow-up a little bit more, another variation on that. Will Midsummer top The Nightingale as my favorite horror movie of the summer? Jennifer Kent, her follow-up to The Babadook. Excited to see that. And in Midsummer's favor... Florence Pugh, so good, and Lady Macbeth is one of the stars, and Jack Rayner, who is the Irish Seth Rogen, who I loved in Sing Street, also co-starring there. Now, just in terms of pure anticipation, are there any titles that you haven't mentioned yet? No, I mean, The Dead Don't Die is probably the one I'm looking forward to the most. And it's really a night, even though it's a genre film in some ways, because it's Jarmusch, it feels like a fresh breath of independent air compared Mm -hmm. to, you know, this MCU we've been living in. Yeah. The Dead Don't Die is actually my number five. The other four have all been mentioned so far. Of course, I'm always curious about an Olivier Asayas film. He's got nonfiction here opening very shortly. And Ad Astra, another Brad Pitt film directed by James Gray. I think it's slated for later in May, May 24th. So looking forward to that. Again, those are our top five questions about the summer movie season. Please let us know your thoughts. You can email those to feedback at filmspotting.net. So what's a Stanley Donnan movie without any singing and dancing? We'll find out with 1963 Charade. It's the third film in our Donnan Marathon. Stay with us. what they want. He's asking what you want. I want him here in 10 minutes or I shoot you in the face and then hang up. He wants you here in 10 minutes or he shoots me in the face. Was he surprised? I mean, did he sound surprised? That's Ethan Hawke with Numi Rapace in the trailer for Stockholm. This is director Robert Boudreaux's new film inspired by the 1973 bank robbery that gave us the term Stockholm Syndrome. Now, Adam, Boudreaux's the director of your beloved Born to be Blue, the Chet Baker biopic, also starring Hawk. Hawk here is playing an American going by the name Lars Nystrom. He robs a Stockholm bank, taking a bunch of hostages, including Rapace's bank teller. Back in January of this year, speaking of questions that we like to ask, your number three question about 2019 was this. The Hawkesants will resume most resoundingly with which 2019 film? The Truth, The Kid, Tonight at Noon, Adopt a Highway, or Stockholm? <laughs> yeah. You had them all covered there. So, I, did. I mean, usually you squeeze two titles into one nope. pick. That was impressive. Mm-hmm. That was really impressive. So, how resoundingly has the Hawkesants? resumed with Boudreaux's Stockholm. The Hakkasans is doing just fine. Thank you very much. All right. Yeah, good to no, hear. It's good. And Stockholm is definitely a film I think that is worth seeing. In terms of which film from that list may ultimately be the best, I'm still going to hold out for The Truth, the Coreda film that I believe Juliet Binoche also stars in coming out later this year. Tonight at Noon and Adopt a Highway I don't think have been released yet. The Kid did recently get a release directed by Vincent D'Onofrio, and I haven't had a chance to catch up with it yet. Stockholm certainly is not in the same category for me in terms of performance or overall film as Born to be Blue or more recently 
first reform, the great Paul Schrader film from last year, but certainly watching Hawk in this role. And we talked about this, of course, when he was here on the show, you're never going to doubt his commitment to this character. And I think what was most fascinating ultimately about the film for me was, I suppose, the ambiguity of it in the sense that if you go into it thinking that Boudreaux is possibly going to lay out for you in fairly simple terms what the Stockholm Syndrome is and how it can actually take effect, what different variables have to be at play for this to happen, how do we make sense of it at all, I think you're probably going to be disappointed because in the end, he doesn't try to lay that psychology out so much as show us, as just depict the way it might have happened. Now, again, he's very aware right from the beginning. He says that it's based on, I think, an absurd but true story. And he's definitely playing with how this all unfolded in real life and the way he dramatizes it. But you can't at any point just say, well, it's because of the sensitivity and the charm of the hostage taker, in this case played by Hawk, or it's the sensitivity and maybe some kind of weakness in the character that Rapace plays, or it's the specific circumstances of the way they were confined or how long they're confined for, and this can happen. It's a really complex situation, and in the end, you realize that it's a combination of all those things and maybe 50 other things that you have to detect. The Boudreaux wants you to kind of study those faces and study those interactions to understand as best you can how things play out. One of the fascinating things about it for me too, Josh, was actually not the psychology so much of what leads to Stockholm Syndrome, but the way the people around them, the way the fellow citizens of the hostages and even those in power respond to their behavior. So there's a key scene where we do witness Rapace's character exhibiting some support, let's say, in very general terms. Again, it's way more complicated than that, but exhibit some support for her captor. And that leads to everybody turning on her. Mm. Everybody out there, the media, the average Swede, and the police end up actually then become hostile towards the victims in this case, which, of course, also clouds judgment and leads to some really bad decisions. So there's just something about that challenge to the norm, the challenge to what society's expectations are for a woman, for a mother, for their sense, their collective sense of right and wrong, and something like this, as again, complex as it is, and how traumatic it might be, and how charged it might be, somehow they can't quite handle that challenge to their norms. Can you imagine something like that playing out? And situations certainly do, but if that initial situation like this had played out in the age of social media, yeah. where, the, where there's no ability to register anything with complexity, but render instant judgment, mm -hmm. right? And it sounds like there's some sort of dynamic going Definitely. on similarly in Stockholm. Speaking of challenging societal norms and expectations, <laughs> that brings us to this documentary from Penny Lane I caught up with a couple weeks back called Hail Satan. And it is a documentary about the rise of the Satanic Temple and its co-founder, Lucian Greaves. And it's really interesting, actually, because he's such a good leader in the sense that he embodies all the principles of the temple. He's so good at maintaining his cool and composure, and he's clearly an intellectual and has put a lot of thought into this and truly means and believes everything he's saying, but he didn't see himself as any kind of performer early on. He was a little bit introverted. And the movie actually opens with the launch of the Satanic Temple in 2013, I think, back in Florida. And he wasn't ready to be the face of it. He hired an actor 
But then he had to be on the sidelines while an actor was sort of spouting his beliefs. And he realized that 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 didn't work, that that layer of artifice clearly wasn't going to work and he was just going to have to do it. But they were basically pulling a prank in 2013 in support of the governor, Rick Scott. And as we see over the course of the dock, this group, this temple grows and grows to the point where it's got chapters all over, not just the U.S., but all over the world at this point. I was joking with you and our producer, Sam, a few weeks ago when I saw it, that if you look at the the seven tenets of the Satanic Temple, I defy anyone listening to the show to look at those tenets and say, I'm not a Satanist. Yeah, you you posted them in, was it in Slack, I in think? In Slack, yeah. It's like you would have, no, if you just read those, if you, just read you them, would have no idea. yeah who this was coming You're from. You're like, I'm like completely on really board. benign and generic. <laughs> and that is kind of what Penny Lane is getting at with the movie. And in fact, I did feel in the end that it wasn't a case of her so much needing to show the other side to the Satanic Temple. I don't think there is another side. It's not that she needed to be more of a journalist, but there is a little bit of cheerleading by the end of the film where it feels like maybe there was... A bit of a lack of inquisition. You wanted a little bit more mm. digging. Again, not digging up dirt, but digging beyond what kind of becomes proselytizing for it. But it's really easy to get on board with what the Satanic Temple is selling. And I mentioned challenging expectations. My favorite scene in the film is one where I think they're in Oregon and they've actually set up after school programs for kids. And if you walked into the room, and saw it happening, and there was no signage, or you didn't know who was putting this event on, if you will, you would say, well, this is great. This is a great after-school program. And the kids are having fun, and they're coloring, and they're talking to about all these things. And then we get this extended scene where this one mother, whose kid probably isn't even in there, but this mother shows up and is just going at them for introducing Satanism and being evil and all these things. And they just take it all in and they respond and whatever. And in that moment, the moment that you as a viewer catch yourself saying, you know, all they'd have to do is take the name Satan out of what they're doing. Just not be the Satanic Temple. Just come up with any other name besides that. And if they were putting on these programs, they would be welcomed by this mom. They'd be welcomed by society. And it's in that moment that you realize that's the entire point. That if they were any other group going by any other name, then the deeds and the thoughts wouldn't matter. No one would care about what they're doing. It wouldn't be the act of provocation. It wouldn't be the performance art, the political activism that it ultimately is. You can't have the Satanic Temple trying to accomplish the very good things it's trying to accomplish, actually, without being called the Satanic Temple. And I was pretty fascinated by that desire to provoke and ultimately where they're trying to take people. Satanism is looking out for the other because we are the other. I am following a code of ethics, having fellowship with brethren. Why can't that be a religion? We do indeed invoke Satan. Yeah, it sounds like the documentary from your description, what it could have needed is maybe more time on what does make them distinctive then beyond the name, you know, necessarily is kind of digging into that a little bit more. But it sounds intriguing. I'll have to see if I it can is. catch up with it. I'm very curious about your response, Josh, as you may imagine. On the list. Hail Satan and Stockholm are both playing in limited release, including right here in Chicago. If you get a chance to see them, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Next week on the show, we are up in the air because 
we definitely plan to talk about the upcoming Chicago Critics Film Festival. Every year, it seems, this lineup gets better and better. Steve Procopi, who has been a frequent guest on this show, will be back. He will talk about that lineup. He's one of the people who helps put the fest on and helps program the movies. The event runs May 17th through the 23rd. We will link to more information about the fest and how you can buy tickets if you are in the area in our show notes at filmspotting.net. The one big movie, it came up just at the tail end of our summer movie preview there, The Nightingale, Jennifer Kent, is playing at this festival, and the star of the movie is going to be in attendance as well for a Q&A. And we do hope to have a review of one of the titles, so yes. maybe that one, if we get lucky, if we get a chance to see it ahead of time, but we'll certainly try to give our take on something that is going to be showing at the fest. Yeah, so we will definitely talk about the Chicago Critics Film Festival. The only question is, to what extent? Because there's also a chance that we'll have an interview with, you know, no big deal, one of my heroes, at least one of my heroes circa the early 90s. That's Kenneth Branagh. Came up in one of my questions, All Is True, the movie where he plays Shakespeare coming out here in May. The publicity folks have reached out. There's a chance we'll get to see the film. There's a chance I'll get to interview Kenneth Branagh. That's going to wait on you. once before. That's, have you interviewed him or just met him? <laughs> Never interviewed him, but I have met him, which okay. I'll be sure to tell him all about. Yes. If I get <laughs> Start to with talk that. to him. We will see how that all plays out. The one thing we do know, we're planning for sure to close out our Stanley Donnan Marathon with 1967's Two for the Road. Audrey Hepburn, again, it's basically an Audrey Hepburn Marathon as much as a Donnan Marathon. turned into that. With the recently departed Albert Finney, we will also share our Donnan Marathon Awards. Sam has a few suggestions here. The Pinks, the Audreys, the Awkward Romances. (laughs) Those all apply. Yeah, they all do apply. We... We'll always take your suggestions if you've been following along. Indeed. Feedback at filmspotting.net. I'm just throwing out here, too. This is maybe more for production meeting off air, but my daughter Sophie, mm-hmm. the about to turn 15 daughter Sophie, has been watching all of these films in this marathon with me. She thinks she's ready for film spotting. She wants to share she wants her, to give her picks. Oh, she wants to give her picks. Uh, Sophie, I could always use a night off. Indeed. We may just replace you, Josh, for those awards. We also wanted to acknowledge what we just learned today. Director John Singleton passed away at the age of 51. He was Oscar nominated for directing and writing Boys in the Hood in 92. He had been directing primarily TV the last couple of years. He did episodes of Snowfall on FX about the 80s crack epidemic and also directed episodes of Billions, Empire, and American Crime Story. Josh, you recently talked about Baby Boy on the show, which looking at his titles, I would say is definitely my favorite Singleton film after Boys in the Hood. What about you? Yeah, his filmography, it's one of those. There's a lot of good stuff there. I don't know. Some people might have one or two titles that they like better than Boys in the Hood, but I don't think in general acclaim he ever quite reached that height. That is still my favorite of his. It's one of those. I was talking again with some film fans the other day about those movies that you came to. Often it's in high school or college that you recognize for the first time, maybe in middle school might happen, there's someone behind the camera. Someone making creative choices that make all the difference. And his debut had that. For a first film, it was just 
remarkable and it still holds up if you revisit Boys in the Hood. But I would put Baby Boy up there among his better films, which did make my top five overlooked movies of the 2000s. The other one I'd point people to as we look at titles like Poetic Justice, which I liked, um, Higher Learning, Too Fast, Too Furious. Speaking of that franchise, your least had, favorite. Yeah, not one of my. Yeah, I didn't think that one worked too well. He made Four Brothers in 05 and then the Shaft remake in 2000. Here's the one I want to highlight for people that I think probably was overlooked that is quite good. And it's Rosewood from 1997. It's a period piece set in the 1920s and looks at this African-American community, uh, sort of, you know, not a utopia, but in that area, maybe as close as you could get. Just a really healthy community that suffers this attack from a lynch mob. It stars in a really good performance. Ving Rhames, Don Cheadle is also in it. So yeah, that's one I think that doesn't get a lot of attention. Probably also not up there with Boys in the Hood, but is well worth tracking down if you want to refamiliarize yourself with Singleton's work. Yeah, unfortunately, a regret of mine. It's the only other film besides Poetic Justice of Singleton's that I haven't seen, so definitely need to make time for Rosewood. We did want to mention our current poll question available over at filmspotting.net. It's right there on the main page. A great question from Sam. Which summer 19 drive-in double feature would you pile in the car for? The options, real quick. These are all movies that are paired together because they open the same weekend. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and Rocket Man. Toy Story 4 and Child's Play. Spider-Man Far From Home and Midsummer, Or Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw. That's not two different movies. That's one movie. <laughs> Along with the New Mutants. And you know what? I answered last week Spider-Man Far From Home in Midsummer, which actually is the winning answer right now. And I'm just going to say, we're all wrong. I hated my answer as I was giving it. It just didn't feel right. I really do think the right answer to that one has got to be either Toy Story 4 with Child's Play. You need something just absolutely silly with maybe some good family fun. So Toy Story 4, that's a good option. Or, yeah, Hobbs and Shaw, that just screams drive-in. And I don't remember where I voted, but given what I, I just either. said, I, I think, and after seeing the trailer, if I didn't vote for Hobbs and Shaw before, then I will have to correct that and vote again. Okay, so you hear that? We were all potentially wrong, or maybe Josh got it right. You can vote now if you haven't already, filmspotting.net. Let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a Film Spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. I should have had you wear double condoms. Well, we shouldn't have done it in the first place, but if you ever do it again, which is a favor to women everywhere, you should not. But if you do, you should be wearing condom on condom and then wrap it in electrical tape. You should just walk around always inside a great big condom because you are shit. Okay. You should not be in contact with any living thing being shit. Have you ever heard the expression, it takes two to tango? you. Well, I could say we should talk about this when you're less angry, but that would be, that'd be, when would that be? you. That is a potty-mouthed Carrie Mulligan, along with Oscar Isaac in 2013's Inside Lewin Davis, written and directed, of course, by the Coen brothers. It was part of an episode a few weeks back where we reviewed Alex Ross Perry's Her Smell, and we did our first Dawn and Marathon movie on the town. We did, and it was funny. We do occasionally get wrong answers from Massacre Theater. We don't often get multiple wrong answers that are the same movie. And there was only one this time. A lot of people, and I understand it, thought we were massacring Knocked Up. Definitely more appropriate in terms of 
the subject matter of that scene than Inside Lewin Davis, but alas, not correct. In terms of tie-ins, some great stuff here from listeners. An international cast, and I'm just going to admit, Josh, on air, I firmly meant to look up the proper pronunciation of this. I did not, so I'm just going to go for it. Micah in Guangzhou, China. This is absolutely one of my favorite films. For The Massacre, Josh, I think your anger was a bit overstated. What you missed was the absolute searing contempt Carrie Mulligan has for Lewin. She is beyond angry at Lewin. She just hates him so effing much. The connections to the show, both films are about the shenanigans of musicians, and both are somewhat structured as biopics, but don't let that get in the way. Always appreciate the notes, Micah. Thank you. I'll carry well, that into my next performance. You gave me the opposite note, so I don't know, right? You accused me of not being angry enough. Well, I mean, that's it. But I think there's an element to what was missing in your anger. And I think Micah's right. It's the contempt. Oh, okay. And I will take that. I will take that as a good sign that you were sitting across from me. And I couldn't muster that contempt. Yeah, I didn't embody my part well enough, no. for sure. Or you just couldn't muster that contempt for me. Give me, give me another night to give it a try. Jeff Milo here in Ferndale, Michigan. This scene is from one of my favorite, perhaps my actual favorite, Coen Brothers films, and I always marveled at Mulligan's intensity. The connections to her smell, Jeff says, while the tension between ex-lovers and some raging outbursts, a protagonist who seems at times to be putting up a sort of guard to the world. A film inspired by an actual musician, sort of, with Courtney Love essentially inspiring Becky Something and Dave Van Rock from the Greenwich Village folk scene essentially building into Lewin Davis. A film about self-destructive behavior, or in Davis's distinction, self-destructing principles, and for Inside Lewin Davis, undoubtedly a contender for Film Spotting Madness, Best of the 2010s, which was discussed, because it wouldn't be Film Spotting Madness without some Cohen prominence. I kid, I kid. This film, especially for the audition scene with F. Murray Abraham, is an all-time fave. It can win Best of the 2010s, and I'd be happy. Yeah, honestly, I was disappointed by the number of entries we got for Inside Lewin Davis because, as Jeff notes, I think this movie should be a top contender for Best Film of the 2010s. And we were, at least... I was. I don't know about Sam when he picked this scene. I was thinking about how we had been discussing the shortlist for Film Spotting Madness on that same episode as an additional tie-in to the music connection of her smell. But Jeff Milo, A+. A-plus work there as usual. We close with this from Ofer Liebergal. He's in Tel Aviv, Israel. This week's Massacre Theater was the Coen Brothers Inside Lewin Davis, a movie that takes place on the town of New York City and has the same themes as her smell. Also, the Cone Brothers were mentioned during the Film Spotting Madness discussion. But the main connection is the date the episode was released, which was the eve of Passover. Inside Lewin Davis is a kosher for Passover film, as mentioned in the closing credits. Ofer writes, No one eats or drinks kamates during the movie. A poster of the Passover Haggadah in the Gorfine's apartment is hard to miss. I had to do a lot of research about this, Josh. This was your research? I thought this maybe was my Sam research. was giving us this no, helpful information. I, I looked it up. Kamates is leaven or food mixed with leaven, which, of course, is not allowed during Passover. But not totally clear to me what Ofer is suggesting, and I wanted to email him back before this show. But he says, as mentioned in the closing credits, no one eats or drinks kamates during the movie. And I don't know what he's referring to there. Is there actually some specific mention in the credits of... Yeah, I think that's my memory, where they kind of, like, identify it. You know, like you'd say, this film made in whatever state okay. or whatever. I think there was right. something... So it's not it's not just any performers in the movie. They're talking about literally the performers themselves during the course of making this film? 
No, I think it was the characters. Okay, the characters. I think, it's, I think it was like a joke referring to the characters. Got it. But I could be wrong. Yeah. No, I Googled it, trying to get more information about it. Couldn't find it, but I'm going to trust Ofer, and that is really taking the connections to another level. Thank you, everyone who participated and who wrote in. Josh, reach into the Not Brimming Enough film spotting hat and tell us this week's winner. The winner is Lewis Coleman from Jackson, Mississippi. Congratulations, Lewis. Email feedback at filmspotting.net. Give us your address, give us your t-shirt size, and we will set you up with your very own film spotting shirt. What happened to the cannoli line? Max. You're supposed to say forget about it, Sanchez. The old man likes his cannoli. Look, I made a mistake, all right? It didn't make any difference anyway. Hey, I'm letting it go. But don't say it doesn't matter. Every line matters. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. The scene will tie in with a topic on this week's show. And that's all you're going to get other than there are two names mentioned. Both characters' names are said during this scene. We have changed those names because it would make it insanely obvious. And there might just be a little bit of a method to my madness with the name changes there. We'll see if that's a hint or not. Anything you want to add, Josh, before we dive in? You're going to no, start it off. No, just don't drift off. This is quick. It's going to come at you and be gone. <laughs> it's true. Your performance is ethereal. Well, we'll see about that. Are you ready? Yes. And action. You're going to tell me to stay away from your girl? Well, if I had to do that, she wouldn't be my girl. Huh. Well, then, I guess you got nothing to worry about, do you, Francis? It just... It must... It must just burn you up that a boy like me saved your life, huh? Gotta be careful. Might not be there the next time. Owen York, stay away from my girl. And And scene. scene. So some tension there, like our previous scene. Yeah, a little tension. Not quite as high. No, and maybe only a dash of contempt in that (laughs) scene. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, May 13th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. You're blocking my view. Oh, uh, oh. which view would you prefer? The one you're blocking. It's my last chance. I'm flying back to Paris this afternoon. What's your name? Peter Joshua. Oh, mine's Regina Lampert. Is there a Mr. Lampert? Yes. Good for you. No, it isn't. I'm getting a divorce. Please, not on my account. Oh, no. You see, I don't really love him. Well, at least you're honest. Mm. Is there a Mrs. Joshua? Yes, but we're divorced. Oh, that wasn't a proposal. I'm just curious. (laughs) Is your husband with you? Oh, no. Charles is never with me. What do people call you? Pete? Mr. Joshua. I've enjoyed talking with you. Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn's Meet Cute and Stanley Donnan's Charade from 1963. In the film, our first non-musical in this Donnan marathon, Hepburn is Regina Lampert, a wealthy American who gets into all sorts of trouble when her mysterious husband turns up murdered. Grant's Peter Joshua at first seems to be Regina's savior, but we soon learn that he has his own questionable motives. The movie's ensemble also includes Walter Matthau as a CIA administrator with a fondness for liverwurst sandwiches, and James Coburn and George Kennedy as two-thirds of a trio of tough guys intent on tracking down a quarter of a million dollars that they're convinced Hepburn's husband left behind. I have to say, one of the thrills of this movie for me, maybe the biggest thrill of this movie for me, was watching those faces pop up. Having mm-hmm. no idea that George Kennedy, James Coburn, and Walter Matthau were all going to pop up on screen yeah, that was within fun. a span of about 15 minutes. Of course, I'm sitting there acting all excited about it, and my daughter Sophie watching the movie with me is saying, who are those people? <laughs> but 
as usual here, we are going to be the TAs, and we are going to let the professor, Nathaniel Myers in South Bend, do the honors of setting up our conversation. Hello, Adam and Josh. So I had a pretty good time watching this week's film, 1963's Charade. The Henry Mancini score was delightful, the intrigue was pretty intriguing, and I found myself equal parts googly-eyed toward Hepburn and Grant. Nevertheless, I recognize there are a couple aspects of the film that require more than a little buy-in from its audience. The first is in its tone. The film has been called a comic thriller, and in some ways, I think the film actually benefits from its blend of the two, moving at a nimble pace between the quippy dialogue of its comedy and the suspense and surprise of its twisty whodunit plot. But it can also make for some jarring tonal shifts. Histrionic faces from Hepburn and Grant shot in close-up for comic effect are often followed only moments later by the fairly macabre faces of the dead, such as that grisly image of the suffocated James Coburn, eyes wide, mouth open, wrapped in plastic. It can be a bit odd, especially when the comedy is at its broadest. The other component that requires some buy-in is the relationship between Grant and Hepburn. I'm not really referring to their age difference, which, for me at least, wasn't quite as troubling as that of last week's funny face. Where I could see there being a potential issue is in Hepburn's overly trusting character, Reggie, whose quick-to-forgive and ready-to-marry attitude is often played for laughs. And sometimes it is funny, and it certainly makes for a consistent character. She begins the movie married to one kind of liar, and ends the movie all but married to another kind of liar. And yet, her willingness to trust and forgive is at times surprising, if not unconvincing, especially after those particular narrative and tonal shifts when the film seems to want us to see Grant's character more in the mode of Johnny Asgarth from Hitchcock's Suspicion than that of Roger Thornhill in North by Northwest, a movie that Charade pays so much homage to. All of which leads me to this week's question. Do you think the film successfully balances its blend of genre and tone, and through it presents a convincing central romance? Or do you think its tonal high-wire act requires the delicate footing of a director like, say, Hitchcock himself to really pull it off? Thanks, guys. Yes, Nathaniel, I couldn't help but think about Hitchcock, too, while watching this movie. I think, you know, the man who knew too much definitely came to mind. And in terms of tone, that good question about tone, maybe the closest of the Hitchcocks I've seen is something like The Trouble with Harry, because it's just silliness, really. And the distinction I might make with something like The Trouble with Harry is even that had dark, morbid black humor underneath it. And I don't know if Charade even has that. I don't know if it even cares enough to have that. This is a movie that, and I'm going to say this right out front, to its credit, I don't think it takes anything seriously. Mm -hmm. I don't think it takes any of those deaths seriously. Um, The many things that Nathaniel mentioned, and I could see someone getting tripped up over, for whatever reason, it was very clear to me the first time Audrey Hepburn was talking to her friend at that ski resort that everything that was going to happen was going to be frivolous. Yeah, I mean, it tells you right from the beginning with the gun appearing from behind a curtain, and then it's a squirt gun. A squirt gun. There's silliness instantaneously. The way she just mentions, I'm going to get a divorce. And and it's almost like just an aside. Yeah. And when she first meets Cary Grant at the ski resort, she just throws it out to him. Totally. As, almost as a come on. Right. You know, it, it, it's like not, nothing's really going to matter. And they end up driving to Paris together. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's all a lark. And I can see some 
someone hearing this and that this is what Nathaniel's bringing up, I think, and saying, well, that sounds terrible. That sounds like a failure of tone. But for some reason, right away, as soon as I understood that, I was on board with the frivolousness. And I think the only thing that makes that possible is the charisma of the two leads. I think without them doing their own thing independently and doing it together so well, I would have had all those problems, those potential problems Nathaniel pointed out would have been troublesome to me. But with these two, with Hepburn and Grant, I mean, they the fact that this movie doesn't take anything seriously includes their approach to their performances. Yeah. And I mean that as a compliment. I don't. Okay. All right. We'll get to that. Uh, we t- we've talked before about what makes a star and what makes an actor. And, you know, Cary Grant is often held up as one who's the epitome of a star. Maybe Audrey Hepburn is too. I, I can't say I've seen enough of her to really say. But I can tell you this. In this movie, they're giving definitive star turns. Okay. It, they're playing off their screen personas to the point that their characters hardly matter. I think it works because I also did not take their romance seriously. I'm not as worried that, you know, Hepburn's Reggie is not asking the right questions about this relationship because it's not Reggie. It's Hepburn. And what she is doing is just in response not to Peter Joshua. It's to Cary Grant. Um, let, Let me give you an example that and then you can tell me why it didn't work for you. But there are two moments here. Okay, there's one where she just stops in the middle of a conversation, looks at the dimple in his chin, oh. and says, how do you shave in there? That's my favorite line in the movie. Okay, great. It's my favorite line. It's fantastic. There's another, he gets a moment that's the equivalent. Makes a terrible joke. There's a lot of groaners in here. Yes. Something about his suit in the hotel they're staying in, and recognizes in an instant that it's a terrible joke, and just says, ha, 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 as he walks into the room. That's like, he's saying that about the script. He's not saying that in character. So throughout this movie, you're watching them. They could be at the craft services table. The most (laughs) entertaining moments between these two could easily be outtakes that happened after Donnan said cut. Again, totally get it if people see that as a detriment to the film. For me, it was part of its charm. Man, I wish it was for me. I so wanted to be on board with this movie, and I'm sure we'll get back to Nathaniel's questions and the Hitchcock connection here. But since you focus so much on the performances and specifically pointed out how it really is just Hepburn and Grant and how the movie doesn't seem to care about its characters, you are either good with that and along for the ride, so to speak, or you're not. And for whatever reason, I was not. Let's talk about it as a romance. Let's go back to that question again. Another example, we touched on it a little bit last week, of a May-December romance, if you will, right? Yep. Cary Grant, 25 years older, so not quite as wide a gap between Hepburn as Fred Astaire had. And of course, there's not as wide a gap just in terms of, I suppose, raw sexuality because it's Cary Grant and not Fred Astaire. I agree with Nathaniel that the age difference isn't as troubling here. For me, it's everything you said. We saw the exact same movie, just appreciated it on different levels. The problem is in the characters themselves and to an extent the performances. He mentioned that kind of quick to forgive and forget and the ready to marry attitude. No, I didn't find it convincing at all. And I actually think this is two Hepburn films, even though I do ultimately like her quite a bit in Funny Face. And I like Funny Face as a movie as well. It's two Hepburn films with Donnan where I don't feel like he really knows how to make her a flesh and blood woman. Huh. She's attractive. She's charming. 
She's given character traits that seem mostly superficial at best, that serve the plot, and they serve the need for love, for romantic resolution, the need for the leading man to be wanted, to be desired, and to ultimately choose her. And I, I think they were going for the opposite here. And I get it. To use your word from the first film of this marathon, they make her the horny one. She's the one, again, it's the woman who's yeah, always attacking him. Initiating all of the romance probably was in some ways an attempt at subverting the way this normally plays out in Hollywood dramas or Hollywood comedies. She's not just an object, and he's not the daddy figure quite that Joe, her character in Funny Face, needed, and she doesn't succumb to his advances. She's doing the advances. I do get that, but I do think she's still the one carrying all of the romantic and emotional, let's say, burden. And Grant, to me, this whole movie, Josh, just appears, other than when he's being just abjectly silly, appears completely disinterested, disinterested in her as Well, let, let a me woman. just say, he, if you want to get into the character motivations, he does have different motivations than I, her throughout much of it. Like, I he understand. comes to care for her. I agree. But I still wanted to see those moments where he caught himself lapsing, where even though he's probably, we come to realize by the end, a pretty clean-cut guy who has a mission here and is going to follow the rules and he knows that he shouldn't get involved with her. I wanted to see more of those moments where he catches himself looking. There's a moment where they're having dinner on a boat and he says to her something like, oh, in case you haven't noticed, I can't stop looking at you. And I was thinking, I haven't noticed, Carrie. I haven't noticed it once, actually. I wanted more moments like the one that's totally manufactured. The only moment of any kind of heat that happens between them whatsoever. It's the one during that absurd orange scene when they are at a nightclub and there's this gag where you have to put the orange in your, in oh, your yeah, neck, yeah. right? And then whoever is next to you and you get these awkward physical moments between men and women and finally it comes to them and we get a moment where you realize that he's a man and she's a woman and they may have certain feelings from her. Otherwise, I just didn't get that sense at all. And Josh, it, That's it, early on though. It, I mean, right, but... But there are lots of moments throughout leading up to that end where you don't you don't get the sense that he is tantalized by her at all. And I think that's what was troubling for me. And some of those character moments and some of those performance moments that you were touching on, there's a scene where they're walking by the water. Actually, she references an American in Paris and Gene Kelly. Mm -hmm. And then she stops and she has to say, oh, whatever his name is at the time, I'm so frightened. And it's like. No, there's just there's just not even a hint of actual terror or fear in your voice. Like she's being asked to pull off something that the director doesn't doesn't equip her with to say I, in that moment. I don't think the movie is interested no, in her being I know, frightened. I don't think she's in supposed to be serious at all. And that's no, where you're on board you're, with it. Not, right, not. right. Exactly. But uh, OK, a, a couple of things. She's that's another moment where she's wooing him. I mean, you're absolutely right in characterizing the dynamic this way. And so that's why there are scenes where he's cold, because he recognizes it. He's yeah. attracted to her. And then he remembers the mission. Right. That's part of throwing us off the game, too, is like, what's going on with this guy? So yes. there's going to be a back and forth. Now, did you say before you have seen her in Roman Holiday? Or I have Pat seen Roman Holiday. Okay. So totally different type of director mm -hmm. there, William Wyler. I'd just be curious if you would say those qualities of her not seeming anything remotely like a real woman apply there as well. They didn't to me in Roman Holiday, maybe because okay. I felt... That connection between them. That's really what I'm getting at. Okay. I feel so a connection in Roman Holiday. You mentioned Hitchcock. I was thinking about Notorious. 
different film completely, but thinking about Cary Grant in a role where you have to believe two people in a pretty quick amount of time develop this is where, a yes. connection. And I'm watching it going, I know Cary Grant's capable of this. I know Audrey Hepburn's capable of this, but this movie is not giving it to me. And that moment you touched on when you talked about it's Cary Grant or it's Audrey Hepburn, and that was a moment of connection for you. For me, it was a complete disconnect. For me, it's the shower scene. It's the shower scene where he goes into her room, basically being badgered to go into her room and take a shower in her bathroom. Badgered by her. Yeah, exactly. And whether, I don't know if he's Dial at the time or Adam or whatever name his character is using at the time, it's not that character acting silly. It's Cary Grant acting silly. It's Cary Grant spoofing leading man Cary Grant acting silly. Emphasis on acting. That's a moment that completely takes me out of the film. There's just an artificiality to charade that you found charming. Everyone in the world but me, it seems, finds charming. Where at least for me in Funny Face, you have the style. You've got the colors and the staging of various numbers to right. complement well, that we'll artifice. Get, we'll get to some of the style. And I didn't get it here. Yeah. I, so I guess I would say, though I didn't need to be this realistic romance that I think would have maybe made it more enjoyable for you, um, I still bought the heat. And I guess you just don't need the logic behind it if you have the fizz. And for me, <laughs> every conversation they have there is that fizz. I, I will agree with you that there are moments, I mean, she always has it, right? Because she's got hots for him. And I think any times there's any reluctance on his part, it does have to do with the character as much as it has to, as much as they're playing these two characters, because our bottom line difference is exactly what you're saying. The fact that the frivolousness is entertaining to yes. me and it's a stopping block for you. Uh, and as far as the age gap goes, you know, I didn't have as much of an issue with it here uh, as I did in Funny Face either. I think part of it is, yes, it's how Grant carries himself for sure. Um, I think it's also that, I mean, he let, let's be honest, he doesn't look 59. I mean, the guy does not look 59. It's amazing. And also, we've talked about costumes throughout this. And here, Hepburn is wearing these Givenchy outfits that Again, are yeah. just so sophisticated and mature isn't the right word, but they make her look older while absolutely retaining her femininity. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't take that away. They're, they're these stunning outfits. And uh, I think, I don't know if we said, but uh, I know we mentioned that Edith Head did the costumes in Funny Face, but Givenchy did the ones that she wore on the runway, basically. Right. The, the real stunners, the fashion gowns. So I think that works a lot in making Hepburn seem a little bit older than she actually is, and it bridges that gap where it's maybe not, it's not as pronounced as it was in Funny no, Face. No, it's not, but that's also... An element for me where I kind of wish, and again, this is just maybe a fundamental thing. The movie is simply not trying to give me that I'm asking for. It doesn't trust the chemistry. It doesn't trust the heat between them. It doesn't allow us to just accept everything you're saying, that he doesn't at all look 59 and he's Carrie frickin' Grant and she's Audrey Hepburn in her 30s but looking more mature and they could just naturally have that connection with each other. It has to comment on it. It has to undercut it a little bit. It has to bring up how... There's this age difference, and and note that element at least three or four different times. Yeah, it openly how so? brings it like up. A, well, because she actually says it. She she makes fun of him for being an old man. Yeah, all that's the time. true. That's true. And there's that that silliness between them that in that moment completely undercuts really any 
any sexiness between them. It turns him into the Fred Astaire type character. I think that's what they're joking at a little bit. It's self-aware Absolutely. in that way. It's another, but I wish it had just trusted the chemistry. It's another instance of them playing themselves, though. It's exactly. kind of acknowledging. Which is just like, less interesting and, to me. And the whole gambit with the name is so perfect. No wonder the guy has 14 different names because right. he's Cary Grant. It's the only guy he's got to be for this movie. Sure. Again, it's on a different level. When you bring up his work in a Hitchcock film, yes, those are better performances. They're more nuanced. There's more going on. Um, to go back to where Nathaniel started us, Charade is not on the level of, you know, even middle tier Hitchcock, I would say. It's doing something different in a way. And even it's not necessarily doing it as well as Hitchcock might. But for what it does want mm-hmm. to do as a Donnan film, I did find that it had a lot of style, actually. It's interesting. The opening shot was jarring to me because it takes place in this dreary, along these dreary train tracks. The yeah. sky is gray. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking, whoa, this yeah, we what have are not we watching? seen anything like this before. But of course, that's a red herring because as soon as we see this initial murder, we get these kaleidoscopic opening credits where the color is just bursting. The Henry Mancini music we get. I'm not even this, a fan of that. You Adam, no, what's, what's I don't love it here. I don't know what, what to say. I didn't love it here. I hated it during the the big fight scene on the roof, where it's just this kind of slow dirge while they're performing all this action. But that's it that, didn't that's, work for me. That number is out of character. A lot of it is very bouncy. There's, there's bright Agreed. horns. There's there were a lot moments of drums where it stuck out here that defined the. I mean, the, the the score has the fizz too. I mean, it's it's all in line with the style of the movie. And and I will say that, of course, it's not a musical, so we're not going to get those um, traditional showstoppers or those numbers that might bring us into this in a way that say, okay, this is frivolous, but at least it's working on that level. But there are little touches here, like when she comes back to her apartment in Paris for the first time and finds it ransacked. Mm -hmm. So everything's astray. And she starts opening cupboards to see if anything is left. And we get a really nice, it's almost like a dance sequence following her. We get a really nice single take where she goes from cupboard to cupboard, whips them open, and the color comes back into play. The room, this is like a taupe painted room, mm-hmm. kind of bland, and the interior of the cupboards are actually painted this fairly bright green. So every door she opens is like a burst of color. The camera is following her. It did bring to mind some of the musical numbers that we saw in his other films. Now, there's not you know a ton of that, but no, I think it's a touch much to it. that you can recognize that Donnan is behind the movie. And I do think you know the shower scene, it's, it's corny, uh, and, and Grant is doing exactly what you say he's doing, but this movie is funny in its own right as well. It doesn't 100% rely on their charm to get by. I think the funeral for her husband is a really silly set That's piece. actually pretty hysterical. Yeah, where the, these – at this point, we don't know all those great actors exactly. you mentioned. We didn't know – I didn't know they right. were in the movie either. And they've all got their idiosyncrasies and yeah. little goofy things they do One by one, they the come body. up yeah. to the body to make sure he's dead. I think that – Some of her lines are good, yeah. She's got some great lines she does. here. And, she and does. she sells it and – Maybe Audrey Hepburn. I think even in Roman Holiday, she's still being Audrey Hepburn. We talked before about how she has this quality of a rare, being a rarefied being who we could never touch, but then giving a small percentage that makes her relatable, right? Here, because it adds that level of sophistication, she almost in a way gets a little further away. She's a little older too. I think that has something to do with it. But because she gets some some really sharp lines, because she's the aggressor, um, which is an interesting way to play with her screen persona, I think it, it 
adds enough of a, a, a twist on things. Mm. Yes, it's Audrey Hepburn playing the star, but in a slightly different way and in a way that I just found utterly charming. You add Cary Grant to that and you can't go wrong. Again. I am perfectly willing, Josh, to have you and everyone listening just completely discount everything I've said because I trust that it's on me. There is so far just some kind of a disconnect. Your F words are fantastic. Fizz, frivolity. Something about Donnan's brand of fizz and frivolity doesn't register with me. And you can't say all fizz and frivolity doesn't register with me because I'm sure I can find plenty of movies that I like that those terms would apply to. But something about Don and the way he employs it here, and this gets back maybe to what Nathaniel was getting at. It's essentially a spoof of a Hitchcock movie. It really is. And in that parody, I wonder if by not really committing again to one kind of path, he, he wants the humor. He wants to subvert our expectations of these Hollywood leads and how a romantic comedy like this would play out. But he also does want to give us the drama and give us the suspense of a great Hitchcock film. And so he gives us extremes in both ways that Hitchcock typically wouldn't give us in his films, but maybe just doesn't quite commit in either direction, which is why maybe we do get some wonderful comedic moments. When I think about the style of this film or the cleverness of it, I think of it more in terms of some of the great dialogue, that opening scene, that meet cute that we heard with Cary Grant, their back and forth, the pitter patter of that, the timing of that. Those are the dance steps of this movie that we yeah. don't otherwise get in the film. Maybe I just needed a few more scenes like that. The test case for you is probably singing in the rain, right? And I know yeah. with Kelly as co-director there, there's that we started this marathon with that question a little bit, wondering about that because he did have or he did work with other directors often. What are we going to attribute to him? What are we going to say is truly his? Mm -hmm. And so far, it sounds like you're finding out the pure Don and um, whatever that other element that someone else brings to the partnership is is what you need. Maybe so. Perhaps. Maybe. Because clearly a big fan of Singing in the Rain. Yes. The fizzes. We're going to go with the fizzes for the Don and Marathon <laughs> Awards. If you've got a better idea, though. And if you've got comments to tell me how wrong I am about Schrade or, I don't know, maybe defend me. Maybe someone say, you know what? You didn't quite go for it either. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Of course, you can find the other movies that have made up this marathon and all of our past marathons. Just go to filmspotting.net and click on marathons at the top of the page. Our final Stanley Donnan film next week will be Two for the Road. And that is our show. If it went by too quickly for you, well, head to the Film Spotting website where you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going all the way back to 2005. That's filmspotting.net. That's also where you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking you to pick a summer 2019 drive-in double feature. Also, if you haven't already, please check out our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. It's hosted by critics Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. They look at a classic film and pair it with a modern release. Look at how they relate to each other. Their latest pairing is Roman Polanski's Chinatown with David Robert Mitchell's Under the Silver Lake. That stars Andrew Garfield and Riley Keough. Mitchell, of course, the director of 2014's it follows. The next picture show comes out every Tuesday at midnight. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to pick up a Film Spotting t-shirt or any other Film Spotting merch, head over to filmspotting.net slash shop. If you want to connect with us on social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, 
go ahead and visit filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in wide release this weekend, El Chicano twin brothers end up on the opposite sides of the law in East L.A. The Intruder with Dennis Quaid as a white guy who won't leave the home that he sold to a young black couple. And Longshot, starring Charlize Theron and Seth Rogen. You thought Astaire Hepburn was a bad romantic match, Josh. We hey. get Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron. And finally, the animated film Ugly Dolls. Our producer, Sam, is forcing us to do the gun-to-the-head pick. You can only see one this weekend. Which one is it? Oh, Longshot. Yeah, totally. Uh, this it is not a gun-to-the-head kind of situation, It looks kind Sam. of adorable. Come on, put the gun away. Okay, we may not review it, but we will talk as if we're going to see it if we have no other choice. Out in limited release here in Chicago, two movies mentioned briefly on the show and recommended by me, Hail Satan, the documentary about the Satanic Temple, and Stockholm, starring Ethan Hawke. The White Crow also out. This is a biopic about Rudolf Nureyev, directed by Ray Fiennes and Mary Magdalene. You've got none other than Joaquin Phoenix, the greatest actor of our time. I'm saying that. Fair. Daniel Day-Lewis, you haven't made a movie Done. in a little bit, so you're dead. He's over. Joaquin Phoenix as Jesus, and you've got Rooney Mara as Mary Magdalene, and yet none of us are paying any attention to this movie, and nobody seems to really like it. There's a double feature for you. We should add this to the Hail poll. Hail Satan and Mary Magdalene. <laughs> you got it. I like where your head's at. Next week on the show, we'll close out the Don and Marathon, and as far as main topic, we're definitely going to talk about the Chicago Critics Film Festival highlight some of the movies that are playing as part of that fest, maybe talking about some of those movies, and we might just talk to Kenneth Branagh about his new movie where he plays Shakespeare, All Is True. Stay tuned to find out which path we go down. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.